There are two questions still left over from last week, so I'm not sure I'm going to get round to the new question that's been offered this evening, but we'll see how we get on. Um, first one here says, I feel able to develop understanding at the head level, but finding it difficult to allow understanding to flow to the heart. And then the second one, I have recently read a free book at the monastery by Ajahn Akinchano, who I believe is a disciple of Ajahn Chah. Most of his talks are about meditation, different levels of samadhi, absorption, nematas, etc., and how to obtain different mental states. This doesn't seem to be taught here at Hanum. Is this because monks here don't have knowledge of deeper states of meditation? Or are the two styles of teaching different aspects of what Ajahn Chah taught? Now in a way, I think these two questions relate to each other. So I think um, it's a very important question and worth taking some time to look at because uh, people often get very confused about this matter. Uh, yes, by the way, uh, Ajahn Akinchino, as he's referred to here, as a disciple of Ajahn Chah, uh, most uh, commonly known as, as Ajahn Anand, a very highly respected, wonderful monk, lives in the southeast of Thailand, uh, where actually Ajahn Punya is at the moment. I do know him. In fact, we were both ordained by Ajahn Chah about 33 years ago, uh, within a few weeks of each other. And um, his style of teaching, as reported in that book, well, I've not read the book, but from what I've heard of his style of teaching, it is characteristic of a lot of the teachers uh, in Thailand, uh, a lot of Ajahn Chah's disciples, and also the uh, tradition that has evolved uh, from Ajahn Man. And it is a, a very uh, eloquent expression of the path of practice, which is characterized by cultivating uh, samadhi very deeply, the different states of mind that conduce to liberation. Uh, now, as to whether the monks here understand what he's talking about, or have equally deep states of meditation, well, I wouldn't speak for anybody else in the monastery. Uh, for myself, personally, I wouldn't compare myself with Ajahn Anand. I don't find that way of practice really speaks to me. Now, that doesn't mean to say that I don't have any idea of what he's talking about, but it's like... There are different approaches to practice depending on the kind of character you are. 
And if we have the sort of character that really benefits from having a goal that is set up in front of us and um, then we have instruction on how to go about achieving that goal and we, and we, we make the effort and, and realize the steps towards that goal and we find that helpful. If we have the kind of character that finds that helpful, well, then that is the path of practice to follow. But I know in my own case and for many, many other people, the past a certain point, making that kind of effort simply doesn't work. Now, uh, as to whether these are different ways of expressing Ajahn Chah's teaching, I, I suppose you could say that. I, I think you know, Ajahn Chah's way of teaching could be represented in any number of different ways depending on who was listening to them. And uh, all ways of, of talking about practice are just ways of talking about practice. Uh, it's also very important to understand that that all the words, all the concepts, including the ones written in Pali or translated directly from Pali, the, these are all approximations of reality. These are, these are alluding to something. You know, as is classically pointed out, these are a pointing. Point, these are fingers pointing to the moon. And if you've ever tried the experiment, for instance, of, of, of looking up at the moon or even a light bulb for that matter, and, and you point with your finger towards the moon, if you actually focus on the moon or the light bulb, you can end up with several fingers. But if you focus on your finger, actually you end up with several moons or several light bulbs. Very interesting. And so you'll find that often people who focus too hard on the concepts or way of talking about the teaching end up disagreeing about the nature of the goal or the path of practice for that matter. In other words, their focus is falling short of what it needs to be. And so when we're comparing different styles or different teachers and so on, I think we've got to be very, very careful that we don't let our attention fall too short of, of, of that to which we're, we're uh, aspiring, uh, which is freedom. Yeah, we, we can be, if we're, our attention is falling too short, well, then we end up grasping, trying too hard to understand the path of practice by listening too hard or reading too intensely the words about practice. Whereas what we all need to bear in mind is that if practice is worth anything, then it's increasing our sense of freedom. It's connecting us more intimately, more deeply, more wholeheartedly with something with inside ourselves that feels good. It feels really good. We, we find increasing energy, increasing confidence, an increasing ability to open up to uncertainty, yeah. increasing capacity to, to deal with uh, complexity. So bearing that in mind, that um, the, these are some the signs of whether the practice is really working for us. Well, then then we can be cautious about, as I said, in, in, in engaging in, in, in comparing in an unhelpful way. There can be helpful ways of comparing. You, for instance, you see, well, is this teacher or this teaching useful for me? There's, there's lots of 
great teachers and teachings out there, which you know um, I wouldn't myself uh, spend a lot of time paying attention to. Now, that doesn't diminish their greatness or say there's anything wrong with the teachers or the teachings, not at all. It's just saying, well, it doesn't connect with my condition. So this is the condition that I've got to deal with. We've all got our own condition. How can we turn this condition around? I think I was saying the other day how that instruction on the the trees in the the monastery, Najin Chah's monastery, there says, eat little, sleep little, uh, speak little. And... uh, you know, that's, that's the basic teaching of the forest tradition and, and so on. But then some overly idealistic Westerners would come along and they'd refuse to talk to anybody. They'd try to go without as much sleep as possible and then they'd eat only a little weeny, weeny bit of food. And they're getting skinnier and more miserable by the day. And Ajahn Chah would come along and tell them, like this, he'd make a gesture like this with his hands. This is the size of sticky rice that you should be eating. Not this, you know, you're not a sparrow. You know, he'd stand in front of them and go like this, huh? Young knee, huh? And you're supposed to eat a big lump of rice, you know, get enough food in your stomach. Uh, likewise with, with speak little. Well, yeah, a certain stage of practice for some people, you know, speaking becomes an obstruction to practice. It's also equally true that for some people you need to talk. Yeah, there is a time to talk. Tamasakacha, yeah. The Buddha said, Dhammasakacha, etang mangalamutamang. Dhamma dialogue is the greatest blessing, the Buddha said. There's also a time for talking and and likewise with sleeping. Sometimes what we need is more sleep, not less sleep. You can drive yourself to psychosis by forcing yourself to not sleep. It depends. So what works really? And and not not trying to understand by grasping the concepts. So Ajahn Nun's way of talking uh, obviously works for a lot of people because he has a lot of uh, very fine monks and nuns living with him. A very famous, very popular, very highly respected monk in Thailand. And if, so if that works, well then that's the path of practice that you follow. But it doesn't work for everybody. And so the teachings that you probably hear here uh, are more of the characteristic of not striving towards a goal in practice. So sometimes I think about this and I talk about it in terms of of, uh, goal-oriented practice or source-oriented practice. Some people, if you don't give a clear indication of the goal and the stages of practice, well, then they can't get a lot of energy going. They, they feel just get wandering around in doubt and uncertainty, and they always feel like they need somebody to tell them what to do. Well, the best thing to do for people like that is uh, to find a teacher who understands the goal and who's willing to talk about it and to be there for you and to help you see the stages of practice. But there are others for whom, as I started off by saying, that when you engage will, a willful effort to strive towards a goal, the body becomes more tense, the shoulders go up around the ears, and you end up getting a headache. And all you're doing is comparing yourself with with where you should be all the time, and basically you're never good enough. You're always falling by the wayside, you're always failing 
And this is, um, I would suggest that this is often the case for many Westerners who uh, we are often very deeply conditioned into this perspective of being always once removed from ourselves, judging ourselves. It's a kind of like a shadow effect or the side effect, if you like, of, of um, the kind of education system we went through. Yeah, discriminative intelligence, which is marvelous. It's great that human beings, we have this, this ability to remember very subtly and, and, and speculate about the future and, 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 and assess and evaluate and analyze and discriminate. However, if we get conditioned to really identifying with this aspect of ourselves, yeah, always, always analyzing, always comparing, always judging, then the mind's never quiet. It just never settles. Even when the mind does start to settle, then there's a voice comes and says, Oh, you're doing really well now. Yeah, you're really you're really on the path, you're just you're really getting close now and you're just gonna drop into jhana any minute and and uh, yeah, this must be a nimiter. I wonder what sort of nimiter this is and oh this is my nimiter is better than his nimiter and yeah, yeah. Oh, I should have a better nimiter and uh, you lost everything. Yeah. Confused again. Yeah. The mind that has been conditioned that way uh, doesn't necessarily benefit from being given a spiritual exercise which is going to plug right into that. You know, sometimes what's called for is to, is to completely disengage from that way of always doing something. Always doing always getting somewhere, always going. So it can, it can just be a form of, of, of classically what's called bhava-tanha, you know, uh, craving for becoming, you know, wanting to become something that w- other than what we are. And this is not just a concept, this is a force. You know, this is a force within our consciousness. This is a, a momentum in our psyche, this, this endless aching to be something other than what we are. So tedious, so painful. And if you equip somebody with this disposition, with a, a spiritual technique that you know holds it up as, as being you know a virtue, well, you can really drive yourself potty. And a lot of people have done this. So yeah, I was saying that uh, the orientation of effort that I characterise as being more more source oriented, which is a very different it's a very different mode of practice. It's not about doing something. It's not about Stages of practice. It's not about, am I getting closer to the goal? Because all of that plugs into into another kind of frequency that may not be helpful for us. It's not helpful for me. That's, I just don't pay any attention to that. Yeah. Now, if this kind of way of talking doesn't make any sense, well, it's probably because we've never got to the stage where the mind drops into stillness. You know, if we if we haven't experienced what it's like to have a quiet heart, a quiet mind, well, then this kind of discussion doesn't make any sense. And it is true that uh, there's a lot of teachers around who have followed a certain method or a certain technique of practice for for a good period of time, and they've arrived at some understanding, a fresh perspective, uh, an alive understanding and appreciation of their experience that is transforming and truly relevant, and uh, from that perspective, they let go of any 
on a particular technique or system or well, their practice from that point onwards is just is just remembering to fall into awareness. That's one way of talking about it. Yeah. Again, reminding us all that it's all just ways of talking. You know, you don't want to take any of this too literally or too seriously. But these characters who talk about practice like that, and they come out with such things as that, well, you know, you don't need to meditate. You know, all meditation is, you know, you listen to Krishnamurti, you know, the way he talks passionately about how pointless all the things you're doing. You know, complete waste of time. Well, the guy meditated for years. I mean, when was he plucked out of his village when he was nine years old or something or other and kind of brainwashed? You know, no wonder he had a kind of allergic reaction to religious systems but he followed religious systems for a very long period of time and he's not the only one there's lots of other people who follow certain systems and teachings and techniques and methods until they get to the point where something shifts and they don't use these anymore but then the way they talk tells other people that they shouldn't use them anymore but that's not fair. I don't think that's fair. I don't, I don't recommend that. And I, I, you know, I, I can appreciate and respect some, the truth of some of these teachers and teachings. But I, I wouldn't, that, on that particular point, I, I think it can be very confusing, uh, misleading to people. In the beginning, for most of us, it's true that we do need to do something. You know, our minds are all over the place, they're scattered and to just any old sense object that comes along, our attention gets seduced and we sight, sound, smell, taste, touches the mental impressions, the six sense objects, we just get knocked around by them all the time. And so our attention never gathers enough clarity, enough steadiness to be able to see things differently. And so this discussion, for instance, about goal-oriented or source-oriented practice is just gobbledygook. It doesn't make any sense to such people. So it is important that in the beginning people are encouraged and, and, and enabled and, and find confidence in doing something that does take us to the point where the mind drops into a new perspective, a new feeling appreciation of our experience. It's like, it's like refocusing the lens. You're looking through a camera, you know, you see a blur, and then you refocus it, and you just, you see, ah, clear. So, and it's got nothing to do with what anybody else says. This is an experience, like a taste, you know, a taste of something that you, you eat. Today we had this um, rather agreeable Serbian delicacy, Serbian apple pie. Now, I don't know, I'd never had Serbian apple pie before today. But Magdalena Molnar, Tanyana Molnar's mother here, spent all yesterday afternoon baking Serbian apple pie. Now, the experience of Serbian apple pie is not something you can describe. You've got to eat it. And I highly recommend it. But there's none left. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. sorry about that. <laughs> well, what I'm saying is the experience of tasting something, we all understand this, don't we? If you haven't tasted something, you don't know what it's like. And uh, so, the, likewise, the experience of that shift in perspective where you start to see the activity of your mind more clearly, and unless we've experienced that, well, we, we can't talk about the relativity of mind states and how to engage them and different ways of engaging them so as to become free from our misidentification as them. So, in the beginning, yes, it's important that we, we get given something to do. 
and we can follow these techniques. We pick up these techniques and we, you know, like counting the breathing or, or focusing on the sensation of the breathing or listening to the sound of silence. This is a kind of doing. And we do it with determination, with interest, with interest in, in seeing something new, learning something new about our experience, about life, about our minds, about consciousness. And uh, if, it's, if we do it with patience and determination and focus in the right way, well, then we can come to an experience of, as I said, it's like a dropping into a new feeling appreciation of life. Now, from that point onwards, you know, it's my view that, that you, you do have a choice as to the kind of effort that you're going to make. And it could well be that you follow the kind of teachings that Ajahn Anand talks about, which is refining down the states of conscious concentration and developing nimittas, uh, which are like just basically nimitta just means a sign, you know, these things that pop up into consciousness when concentration becomes deep enough, strong enough, intense enough. And we can engage these uh, practices in ways that uh, give increased confidence and um, understanding about the path of practice. But it might also be the case that you just find that that's not working for you. And so I think it's important that we understand, well, there is, there is another language. There is another way of practicing. And, and it, it isn't about making an effort to get rid of the obstructions to practice in the same way. You know, comparing these two orientations of practice is like comparing a musician with a poet yeah. or comparing a, an astronaut with a deep-sea diver. Yeah. You know, they're both investigating truths of experience, of reality, but they're going about it in a different way. So the point I would suggest is to be open-minded, open-hearted and listen to what it feels like when you hear these different teachings. Is this encouraging? Is this uplifting? Strive on with diligence. That's what the Buddha said. But if you're so tired of striving that, you know, you, you've just, every time you strive, you just become more divided within yourself and, and you, you're just doing your head in, as they say, you know, trying hard to focus on your meditation object and get rid of all your kilesas, you know, well, then I would suggest, you know, stop trying. Yes. Even stop meditating. Yeah. That's what I would say. Stop meditating. I, I quite often actually recommend people to stop meditating. It's not doing you any good. Take up drumming. Drumming is a great exercise <laughs> for some people. Um, I'm thinking about that because I'm just telling somebody today that I thought they should take up drumming. A, it, we've got to work with what we've got. And so if we feel fundamentally divided within ourselves and there's always trying to focus on the meditation object and, and, and always trying to do better than what we've done in the past isn't really giving us increased contentment and well-being and confidence, well, then I would say let go of trying and trust. Trust in what the Buddha was talking about, which is that there is a real reality behind all these conditions that are arising and ceasing, and it's just so. It's not like 
you know, the, the Buddha said it's not like he, he invented the Dhamma. The Buddha, you know, whether the Buddha appeared in the world or not, the Dhamma exists, the truth exists, Nibbana exists, this is the reality. So it's not like we have to create Nibbana or we have to earn points to score Nibbana or we've got to earn our way to get a ticket into Nibbana. Yeah. We could also simply trust in the reality of Nibbāna, trust in the reality of what is behind all this doing. And so whereas for somebody whose practice is characterized by more goal orientation and striving and diligence and focus and that kind of intensity, somebody whose practice is characterized more by uh, sort of source orientation is more about trusting, simply trusting in what is. And what this calls for is a, a radical receptivity, a radical receptivity of everything. It's not excluding mind states. It's not excluding feelings. It's not excluding anything. Rather, it's including everything, absolutely everything. And it is a different language. And so from this perspective, whatever comes up in meditation is practice. You can feel utterly, utterly confused. No judgment. Confusion is just confusion. Confusion is what it is. Confusion is a movement in consciousness. It's like this. But what is confusion arising and ceasing in? Confusion wasn't always there. You know, that's why if, if confusion was always there, we couldn't talk about it, could we? Confusion, we can only talk about confusion because we know non-confusion. Yeah. Well, like desire, we can only talk about desire because we know that desire began. If desire was eternal, we couldn't talk about desire. But we know desire is relative. Desire arises and ceases. So what is it that desire arises and ceases in? What existed before desire arose and what exists after desire ceases? And so those kind of questions are, for instance, the, the kind of questions that somebody whose practice is characterized more by trusting in what is rather than striving to realize a goal. And I think this is uh, you know, from um, you know, Ajahn Abhinando, the way he talks about practice. You know, when we discuss together, we, we have a, have a uh, very comfortable and very happy shared uh, recognition of validity of this path of practice. It doesn't... You know, it doesn't mean to say that it's uh, an easy option. Yeah. Some people could say, listening to this, and say, "Oh well, you know, that's uh, you know, what about striving for the goal that you know the Buddha talked about?" So, well, once again, these are all just ways of talking. You, know, you try this path of radical receptivity where everything is practice, and uh, it's not very easy because you've got to stop taking sides for against anything, anything that arises in practice, everything that arises in awareness. No taking sides. See? My practice is complete rubbish. Mm-hmm. That's just so. It's so tempting to take sides for or against that. No, I can't think that my practice is rubbish. I must dismiss that thought. Or, yes, my practice is complete rubbish. I know I've been wasting my life. Taking sides for and against is the characteristic of the conditioned mind. It's easy. 
It's very easy. It's the easiest thing in the world to take a position for or against the content of our minds. You know, thoughts of ill will towards somebody. You, know, you really resent somebody. You, know, you just this feeling of I really hate their guts. Yeah. It's so tempting to take a position for or against. Yeah. Oh, I shouldn't be thinking such things. You know. Oh, yeah, I'm justified because they are such a so-and-so. Yeah. Is, how, can we just, can we, at that point where we're tempted to move for or against, remember there is that which is inherently still, inherently pure, inherently perfect, and inherently free from suffering. Remember that and let that remembering trigger a trust that means we can fall back into a larger reality, into an awareness whereby we, we don't have to become that particular movement in consciousness. Yeah. I mean, you're remembering. This is, this is, remembering becomes the effort. This is simply the effort in the moment to remember that possibility. And I personally, I feel very confident about this, um, from my own experience, this works. It means that there's more and more of the experiences we have that can be turned around. Yeah. As, as Westerners, we have very, act, very active minds and, and, and uh, extreme emotional reactions to life and the kind of conditioning that we've had. Um, there is a very real risk that in developing the path of samadhi, you know, refined states of concentration, in, and consciousness becomes very potentized, very intense, you know, that if our character, if our conventional character is not very stable, not very balanced, that this spiritual energy, this, inherent, this, this potency that we're, we've cultivated, can be kidnapped by the kilesas, you know, or, or kidnapped by the neurosis that instead of this energy liberating it it can it can potentize the the, uh, the defilements of mind we can become more angry more afraid more anxious more confused more greedy get possessed by lust totally possessed by lust you didn't have a good enough perspective on your tendencies for lust or a good enough perspective on your tendencies for for hatred and you develop concentration deep enough and focused enough and intense enough, that energy, that spiritual energy, can actually become perverted, become distorted. Yeah. It's not just what happens to kind of postmodern neurotic Westerners. I suggest it's also even at the time of the Buddha when, you know, somebody like, for instance, um, Devadatta, the, the Buddha's cousin, had great samadhi, had the jhanas, had all sorts of abilities. And yet his mind was not balanced, and that spiritual energy actually got perverted, and he started using it to try and cause a schism in the community and to try and turn against the Buddha. But um, it's been my observation and my own personal experience that you've got to be very, very careful with uh, developing intense states of consciousness if, uh, if you're not really well-centered and really well-balanced in your life and in your lifestyle. 
It's true also that the environment that we live in, you can, you can develop some of these refined states of consciousness and then have your lifestyle interfered with in a dramatic way, uh, and it can become very, very disturbing. Uh, it's, it's quite um, generally well understood that if you are going to follow that path of practice, you need to seclude yourself from society and seclude yourself from all sorts of interferences that are going to disturb consciousness because the mind becomes very vulnerable and very very subtle. Uh, if we're living in a situation where our life is, uh, is not necessarily uh, predictable and stable and quiet and, and supportive, well, I would suggest that cultivating a, a path of practice which gives us the freedom to work with everything that arises is safer. And so that's what I, as I said, that's what I have confidence in in my own experience and, and in my own observation uh, that, that this works in our society and this, this situation that we find ourselves in. More and more situations can be, can be the source of encouragement. You know, when, you, when you're talking with somebody and you're finding the conversation very threatening, you know, like getting you in the solar plexus or... Or, it, you know, you, you go up in your head and you're getting all confused and frustrated because this person is dumping their toxic waste on you. And, and, and if all you're thinking about is, how can I get the hell away from this character who's ruining my practice and go and meditate? Yeah, well, you know, I'm not sure that's very helpful, really, because you're probably just going to bang into somebody like that again before too long. Yeah. Unless you can isolate yourself in a very conducive situation, if you can, well then fine. But it's also possible that if our path of practice is, as I said, trusting in what's there behind whatever arises and ceases in the moment, that when we're finding ourselves feeling threatened, afraid, confused, no judgment. Not taking position for or against it. Rather the momentum of our orientation of effort is towards enlarging our awareness, being more present, not thinking about another time and another place where we can get away from the situation that's irritating me, but rather embracing the situation with more of ourselves, with more willingness, with less resistance. How can I be more fully with this situation? How can I be more of a sensitive, caring, discerning human being right in this moment while I'm having to deal with this exceedingly difficult, challenging person. So I mentioned that by saying that that's why I have confidence in, in this, this approach to practice. It means that we can find that we can turn around the situations we find ourselves in more readily, more ably, and also not just generating benefit for ourselves, but also generating benefit for other people. Now the other part of this question here, tonight was this person who was suggesting that um, they were able to develop understanding on the head level but they're having trouble allowing understanding to flow in the heart was the word that they were talking about now the reason I suggest that it fits in with this this other question is because one of the reasons that we can feel obstructed in, in, in this understanding flowing into our heart or flowing into the core of our being or or bringing us more alive is because we are fundamentally locked into this mode of actually distrusting, you know, which, which can be the, 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 the goal-oriented practice. Is something, basically, we're operating out of the assumption there's something wrong with us. You know, the feeling of, I'm damaged goods. 
very normal. It's very normal for people in our culture, our society at this time. A very deeply held belief that I'm damaged goods. It's even, we're even indoctrinated with it, with religion. We're sinners. It's right there from the very beginning. Our most ancient uh, ancestors sinned, and we've been flawed ever since. We are inherently damaged goods. And that these days, of course, is, is uh, compounded by sometimes a regrettable lack of, of affirming, loving, non-judgmental caring uh, in early stages of life. And we can be carrying around a very deep view that we are uh, damaged goods. And so you know, if we, we're holding on to such a view, such a feeling, such a whole body-mind experience, then we can pick up the Buddha's teachings about purifying the mind, liberating ourselves from defilement and so on, and, and striving to free ourselves from greed, aversion, and delusion, and, and all our unwholesome thoughts, and, and the, the, the four right efforts, and the, the five hindrances, and, and all these things. We can be hammering away at these things. But it's all based on, it can be just based on this you know, basic self-loathing. Fundamentally, deeply divided against ourselves. So the understanding, the right understanding that we recognize in the Buddha's teachings, the conventional right view that we hear and we read and, and we start to intuit the, the validity of, doesn't deepen. It doesn't, because we, we, haven't, we haven't let go of that heart contraction, which is, the feeling of the fear that comes with the view that I'm basically inherently flawed, yeah. or however that conditioning might translate. Yeah, the heart goes into a contraction very early on in life if you condition it in, the, in an inappropriate way. And instead of addressing this pain, this knot, this agony in the center of our chest, so we can pick up the Buddhist teachings or such spiritual teachings and and use them to justify this, basically, this path of self-mortification that the Buddha warned against, actually. Atta gilamatana yoko. Self-mortification. It's futile, pointless, complete waste of time, he said. Yeah. So it's, it's, it can be quite subtle. We need, to be, we need to be alert to this. But I would suggest, if it is the case that we feel this understanding is not permeating our being and not not flowing through us and enlivening us and warming our hearts and, and giving us greater confidence and, and joy, well, then it might be good just to take a little look at this, this fundamental view we have of what practice is about. If we think that we, you know, we, we have to, we're damaged and we've got to make ourselves pure or we're, we're flawed and we've got to make ourselves right or we're unenlightened and ignorant and stupid and we've got to make ourselves enlightened and, and real and so on. If we're holding on to such views, well, I would say feel how we hold on to them. What is the result of holding on to such views? What does it feel like to hold on to such views? And even that much, just that much, you know, we've, we've, we've pulled back the momentum of following such views and are feeling what it feels like in this moment. Now, this is, a, this is a slight shift. We start to feel what we feel, hear what we think, sense what we sense. And kind of coming home, coming back to this condition, 
instead of always going out there trying to become something else, coming back to this receptivity of this right now. And then Mara comes into the world, you know, you gotta, don't lose sight of the goal, you've got to keep striving to become something better. And a, Well, you can hear that too, say, yes, I hear that. Yeah. This is what has to be transformed. This is what we've got. This needs to be fully received before we can move on. Yeah. So I would suggest that if we're feeling obstructed in that, that way, uh, yes, we have the understanding on the head level, but it's not deepening. Well, then come back and, and, and feel the questions. Feel the doubts we have about practice. You know. From the perspective of source-orientated practice, doubts are not an obstruction. Yeah. Even doubting Buddhism. Yeah. You can doubt Buddhism. You say. Doubt all the teachings that you've ever heard. Doubt the teacher. Doubting the teacher can be an obstruction to practice, or doubting the teacher can also be an inspiration for practice. Even doubting the Buddha can be an obstruction for practice, or it could be an inspiration for practice. It depends how we pick it up, yeah. how we view it. So again, all these um, words, all these ideas, are these are just alluding to something. They're hints, intimations, suggestions, trying to direct attention in a way that helps us get more in touch with the feeling of confidence that we can take responsibility for our lives. Yeah. It's what works that counts. You know, you don't Please don't hold on to these things too tightly. They'll just make you more confused. Yeah. Whatever, not just me or Ajahn Anand or Ajahn Chah or the Buddha. Yeah. If we hold on to the teachings too tightly, we end up actually misusing the teachings. Yeah. Remember, some years ago I was translating a, an interview session. Um, there was a tape of this interview session of a bunch of Western monks that we were having with Ajahn Chah and they were talking about, it started off the conversation, started about uh, contemplation. What actually is contemplation? What's the point of contemplation? And, and um, this, this talk, this translation is printed in their book, Seeing the Way. And Ajahn Chah is telling the monks about how, you know, contemplation is basically for seeing through the way things appear to be until you can bring about this letting go and you know, letting go of everything and then, one of the monks, I'm not sure whether it was Ajahn Kawesika, the Japanese monk, or Ajahn Titinyana, the French monk. One of them uh, asked Ajahn Shah and say, well, when you let go like this, what's left? Can you call it uh, the original mind? And there's this word in Thai, jit derm. Jit derm. Can you, what's left when you've let go of all these things? Can you call it jit derm, original mind? And Ajahn Chah says, well, you can call it what you like. You know, you can call it Jit Derm if you want to. But if Jit Derm is something, if original mind is still something, that's not it. You've got to throw that out as well. Because you start talking about these things, like the concept of original mind. The next thing you know, people are grasping at this original mind. I've got to attain original mind. If original mind becomes a thing, it becomes an object, well, that's trying too hard and, and I think even in this, uh, in this particular translation of Ajahn Chah's uh, teaching, I think, and his use of the word jit term, I think this has caused some people to question Ajahn Chah's understanding of practice. But they want to listen very carefully to what he was saying. 
And he wasn't holding up Jit Durm as some eternal state of mind that you want to grasp at, but rather, and he said quite specifically in this question and answer session, he said, well, if we don't have words or concepts, well, then we can't share a conversation on what we're doing. So we need to have words and concepts. But the words and concepts are just that. You know, they're approximations, they're pointers, they're hints, indications. They're not something to be grasped at. So whatever orientation of our practice, goal-orientated practice, source-orientated practice, you know, uh, all of these teachings are pointers, hence that are hopefully helping us get more confident. And so we move towards increased confidence and freedom. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs>